um, about this process. I would like to say you can't win if you don't run. Uh, and uh, be willing to take some risk and get in there because we need you. That's Janet Napolitano, 21st governor of Arizona, former secretary of Homeland Security, and current president of the University of California system. She's addressing the emergent leaders in the audience, women who have aspirations to work as public servants or executives, for instance, as she closes her initial remarks at the Howenstein Center's Women Governors Conference. That conference, which the Howenstein Center hosted in collaboration with the National Governors Association, was the first time ever gathering of U.S. women governors, along with other scholars and leaders, to discuss leadership and gender. In today's episode, we offer a conversation between Napolitano, a Democrat, and the 50th governor of New Jersey, as well as former administrator of the EPA, Christine Todd Whitman, a Republican. The pair talk about how they each got involved in politics at the local and state level, and what it ultimately took to win their gubernatorial races. They discuss what life was like once they got into office, how their leadership styles evolved and adapted to the demands of their roles. This conversation is insightful and useful. It's also just fascinating to listen to. Napolitano and Whitman speak with candor and ease. They tell stories about politics and about some of the challenges they had to face, difficult decisions they had to make in office. Napolitano talks about a hostage situation at a, at a prison, for instance. They have a nice rapport with each other in this conversation. They also have a nice rapport with their moderator, Mary Kramer, vice chair of Grand Valley's Board of Trustees. Also, they talk about current events. Christine Todd Whitman discusses her recent op-ed in the New York Times, How Not to Run the EPA, is the title of her op-ed. It's a critique of the Trump administration's undermining of many of the advances in Whitman's view that have been made by the EPA in its 47-year history. Janet Napolitano talks about the lawsuit she, as president of the University of California system, filed against Trump's termination of DACA, or Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, which she herself created as Secretary of Homeland Security five years ago. Their conversation was preceded by some thoughtful and really timely remarks given by Ann O'Keefe, Assistant Director of the Howenstein Center, Nicole Horn, a fellow of the Cook Leadership Academy and a friend of mine, and Rosalind Bliss, Mayor of Grand Rapids. Their introductory remarks are excellent and worth a listen. To hear them, visit the Howenstein Center's website to see the video of this event in its entirety. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan. This is Common Ground. Well, what can I add to those bios? <laughs> um, but actually, you know, I want to start by just noting how historic tonight is. Um, I think, uh, if my numbers are correct, there have been 39 women governors in the country's 200, what, 240-year history? Uh, seven current governors. So this is kind of a cool sorority that we're building here. And it's, it's wonderful that we have the turnout that we have. Um, I want to start with a few questions about the, the topic today. It's leading change and forging common ground. But to talk a little bit about each of you, public life is not easy. And so I, I'd like to hear uh, each of you talk a little bit about 
when did you decide to run for governor? Um, what surprised you most about the process? Uh, and for people in the room who are considering elected public office, what, what are the things that you most need to know? Would you like to start, President? Well, I'll, I'll start. Um, um, actually, my, my first big jump was to go from private practice to becoming the U.S. attorney, uh, which is a position I held for a little over four years. And uh, at that point, I was 39, and the attorney generalship of Arizona was going to be an open seat. And I, I really you know, thought to myself, I, I didn't want to be 80 years old, rocking on my front porch, doing the woulda, coulda, shoulda thing. <laughs> and um, uh, with support from friends and family, I decided to resign in order to run. Uh, and I started from scratch. There was not much of a Democratic Party base in Arizona. <laughs> um, Is there today? And. Um, uh, I had one campaign worker and a tiny office and two phone lines and a card table and some folding chairs. And that's where we built the campaign from. And I was uh, fortunate enough, uh, not fortunate enough to win underestimates. It takes a lot of work. Um, and it took uh, months of being on the phone, cold calling people to raise money uh, and, um, you know, and then doing all the other things you do in a campaign. You do the, the barbecues and the parades and the wine and cheese parties and, and everything you can to reach out to voters. Um, and, uh, you know, when I, when I won, uh, I served uh, one term, and then the governorship was going to be an open seat. So there's a, a light motif here. Uh, and I decided to run for governor, and that was a really tough, uh, tough race. Um, uh, Republicans had controlled the governorship in Arizona for decades. They weren't going to give it up easily, uh, and it was really a matter of uh, having a good message, communicating with voters, um, and, you know, working your tail off um, to, to get there. Um, and when I, when I ultimately won by an astonishing majority of 1%, um, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, it was, it was the greatest uh, news in the world, and that kind of set me on the pathway. But if, if you had to ask me for my advice to, to young women about... Um, about this process, I would like to say you can't win if you don't run. Uh, and uh, be willing to take some risk and get in there because we need you. Thank you. So, Governor Whitman, uh, what was your experience along these lines? Well, I grew up in a political family. Mm -hmm. And I was the youngest by eight years, and so my parents got lumbered with me all the time. The others were away at school and college and things. And so I was at the dining room table all the time, and what we talked about was what was happening mm -hmm. in the county, in the state, in the, in the world. 
And so I grew up knowing I really loved policy. And I went to college and majored in international government because I figured, as only an 18-year-old can, I knew everything I needed to know about domestic politics because I've been <laughs> you know, going door to door since I was 13 and filling out things for my mother and father and things like that. They never ran for office, but they were very involved in the party in New Jersey, which is a difficult place to be a Republican. Yeah. <laughs> I just say that just to, to say and, uh, There's a yin and yang here, yeah, I think. Yes, <laughs> it was not. It was not great. But um, in any event, I, when I got out of college and I didn't know what I was going to do, as so ha often happens in life, it's serendipity that gets you on your particular path. And I had, um, I had interned for the last Republican U.S. Senator in, from New Jersey down in Washington, 1969. Is that the last one we had? Uh, it's been a while. And, uh, but it wasn't that. It was the house I stayed in. Happened to be rented by a woman, who, a gal, who was working full time down in Washington. And so when I graduated from college, I had no clue what I was going to do. I had this nice degree in international government and a minor in history and no idea what I was going to do. I got this call and she said, my congressman, she was working for a congressman on the Hill, has just been appointed head of what was then the Office of Economic Opportunity. And did I want to come down and help move him from do the transition? Uh, of course, I said yes. The congressman's name was Don Rumsfeld. <laughs> I spent a year and a half on and off working with him. but. Again, a series of things led me to meet other people. I decided to come up with some ideas of what I thought the Republican National Committee could do better. And then I had a chance to meet the Republican National Chairman. And lo and behold, he said, fine, you're hired. And I pitched the idea to him. So I got to run a national program that I made up at age 23 <laughs> or 22 and, and had a great time. But really what it was when I, I took a chance. And as, as Governor Napolitano said, you really need to take a chance, and you need to get out there. And when my husband and I were married, John always said it was for better, for worse, and for politics. <laughs> because he knew I always wanted to be involved. And he actually was the grandson of the governor of, of a governor of New York State. So he understood a bit of it. And his father was an elected judge in the city, the only Republican elected judge in all of Manhattan. Um, <laughs> nobody wanted the job. It was a very low court, and nobody wanted it. <laughs> But in any event, um, we moved to England. When we came back, I was asked to, uh, I wanted to get involved. And mm -hmm. so I was asked if I would join the Community College Board of Trustees, which I did. And it was great, because I got to know not only the college and the, and the county, but also the people who were running it and were making decisions. And then a slot on the county commission, we call them freeholders in New Jersey. They obviously come up with lots of other things, freeholders and frozen cheese holders and things like that. <laughs> um, and I said yes, and so I ran for that, which was fine. That was not a big challenge. And then the governor, then governor, who was a Republican, Tom Kane, asked me to serve as president of the State Board of Public Utilities. I knew nothing about regulating utilities. Uh, at that point in time, the only thing I knew about was garbage, and because they did garbage. I mean, I do. I knew a lot of other things from having been president of the freeholder board for two and a half of my five years, or three of my five years. Um, but I didn't know anything about that. But I thought, at that point, I'd almost gotten to the point where I thought, I'd, I really, I want to see what this is like, real <coughs> statewide office. And so I took it on as a member of his cabinet. And again, you learn that what you don't know, you've got to learn to admit what you don't know and mm -hmm. seek out those people who will know it. 
and understand that whatever position you have, there's always going to be somebody who knows it better than you because they've probably been there for their entire lives. And you need to figure out who those people are and who you can trust and listen to them. And don't try to learn everything and know everything yourself. Um, I knew the garbage. We regulated garbage, so that was fine. But I knew nothing about intra and intraladas, which they had to do with the telephone company because it had just been broken up, AT&T. Mm -hmm. And we did gas and we did oil and we did, we did everything. And then in 1990, I was approached by the only, at that point, I think she's been the only Republican, female Republican state chairman to ask if I'd run for the Senate. And by then I decided, first of all, I liked elective office better than appointive because you're so much closer to the people that you mm -hmm. serve. And then secondly, I also thought if there's one really, really good job, the best job in the world is governor of the state of New Jersey. Now, New Jersey has no other statewide elected officials save the governor and the two U.S. senators. Now we have a lieutenant, a lieutenant governor, but that person is chosen by the gubernatorial candidate, and that didn't happen while I was governor. And you appoint everybody. You appoint the secretary of state, the attorney general, the state treasurer, all the judges, all the prosecutors. It's I mean, a you have very an powerful, powerful governorship. It is. Yeah. It's an extraordinarily powerful governorship, and with a couple of other uh, caveats that make it even more so. But the state is very divided, north and south, and to get to know the whole state, I thought, okay, I'll do this. The only problem was, I was running against an incumbent senator who was in his first reelect. This was his second reelect, and his first reelect had beaten the Republican woman challenger by 16 percentage points. He was a Rhodes Scholar, Princeton graduate, uh, Olympic athlete, <laughs> New York Knick basketball player, <laughs> and had been had just rewritten the tax code. His name was Bill Bradley. Um, I decided, well, if I want to get to know the state and I want to get known in the state, I'll take it on. And fortunately for me, and it is something that I think people need to watch out for, he had gotten so into the life in Washington and what people were telling him about his being the next presidential nominee for the Democrats, because mm. he was very, that, that was kind of what was going to happen for him, that he didn't take the race seriously. And we had at that point a new Democrat governor who had raised taxes on everything, including toilet paper, which meant that the state house got trashed with toilet paper on a regular <laughs> basis. And people were furious. And the interesting thing was Bill Bradley and I didn't really disagree that much, mm -hmm. <laughs> except I kept asking him, what did he think about the tax increases? And he wouldn't answer. And I'd get up every morning and think, all he has to do is get up and say, you know, I hate taxes as much as the next person, but I've got to respect the governor's job and what he has to do to balance the budget. And that's it. I've done. I mean, I really had nothing much. And he never did that. And then he also, and it's the only time I've ever played the gender card, we couldn't get debates, which no incumbent wants to give a debate to an un underfunded unknown is what I was known as. And um, so we finally put together a press release that said that we had several quotes of his saying how important debates were to the democratic process. And then we said, he, we can only, I can only conclude that he is scared to debate or he thinks it's beneath him to debate a woman. Well, we had two debates uh -oh. in <laughs> 24 hours, one on domestic policy, one on international. And um, you know, it was going to be a challenge. He's a bright, bright guy, a really smart guy and a nice guy. But on the international one, it was military and international, and so I thought, okay, who knows the most about this? Who can really make me smart on these issues? And we happened to have a former president who lived in the state at that point. His name was Richard Nixon. I decided the hell with it. I was going to reach out to him and ask him, and he said yes. 
And I went and spent an hour and a half, and whatever else you say about him and whatever other tragedies his personality um, brought him to, he knew international cold. I mean, he was really bright and knew it all. And he took me on a trip around the world, so when we had the debate, uh, Bradley, who would throw out a missile defense system or throw out a, something about a, a, an incumbent leader in another country, I could answer him. And that, I benefited from the fact that there weren't many Republican women governors at that point, and so the fact that I could string two sentences together meant I was pretty smart, right there. <laughs> I mean, the bar was kind of low, but the fact that I actually knew this stuff gave me credibility, and at the end of the day, he spent some $12 million, and I had less than a million, and he beat me by two percentage points for the Senate. Hmm. I had never wanted to go to Washington. I, what I really wanted to do was be governor, but I would have been honored, obviously, to have served. But that set me up so that I could then run for governor. I had credibility. I spent the next three years helping local candidates with issue research. And then, um, I, and this is where I think sexism perhaps came in. I think if you, if any male candidate had run against somebody like Bill Bradley and come as close as I had come with no money, I would not have had a primary. As it were, I had a three-way primary. Oh. And uh, I made it through that, and then the rest is... The rest is history, right. So I might add, too, that, um, and I think, are there cards at the table, uh, on the chairs? Okay, so if, okay, there, there are cards as you came in. So if you uh, would like to ask a question, we are going to have time for Q&A, uh, and you can just raise the card, and somebody will come and pick it up. Um, the thing about being governor is that you really are an executive. I mean, you are running a major operation. And I, I, I'd just like to hear a little bit from you both uh, about your leadership style, your executive leadership style. Um, did it develop? Did you have one? What, how would you describe it now? You're running a large organization now. Yeah, I am. Um, <laughs> um, you, know, I, I, you know, I do think executive leadership style evolves as it's informed by experience and as you, uh, as you grow and, and mature into the roles. Um, uh, I, I think a key thing about being governor um, is uh, people have to believe that you have their best interests at heart. They may not agree with you about a particular decision, um, but if you take the time to explain it, to um, uh, set it out, to say, you know, here are here's why I did what I did, um, uh, that people will come around. And uh, the way I measure that is when I won my first governor's race, it was by uh, like one percentage point. When I won my second governor's race, I got 66% of the vote. Um, and I carried every county and every legislative district in the state. Um, I, ran, I ran the table. And it was because... Um, it, it, um, uh, you know, I think people uh, uh, appreciate the difficulty of the decisions that somebody like a governor has to make. Um, and um, they also ap uh, appreciate that um, it's not an all or nothing game, that, you know, you, 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 you win some, you, you lose some. Uh, and. Uh, and, and so it's that power of communication, that power of persuasion, 
that goes along with executive leadership. And then I think it's important to have a great team around you, uh, to have a great chief of staff, to have heads of your cabinet departments who are strong and knowledgeable, uh, and that you have internally that great sense of that you're all part of one team. And um, you know, you have uh, the welfare of a state um, as part of your charter. And, uh, you know, that's in the end how you will be evaluated. And those are the metrics that will be used to measure you. You know, what did you do to improve the lives of Arizonans today? Um, and so we've really tried to uh, communicate that message both to the public at large, that that's what um, we were taking into account and then internally how we were measuring performance uh, amongst the team. Uh, and, uh, uh, and I think lastly, um, it's so easy in these jobs to lose sight of your long-term vision in the mishmash of the crisis du jour or the bad story in the press or you know, what, whatever is happening. And uh, to try to retain uh, the ability to uh, deal with the crisis du jour or the bad story in the press and not lose sight of where you were headed and, and what the long-term vision um, is. And, you know, that's something I struggle with even today mm -hmm. um, at the University of California. But, um, uh, you know, I, I do think in the end um, uh, great leaders are measured by big goals that they accomplish, uh, not how they handled the latest bad story in the San Francisco Chronicle. Governor Whitley? I agree, 100%. <laughs> I mean, it, it's absolutely true that one of the things you learn mountain biking is never look where you don't want to go. Um, you know, if you come across a rock in a, on a gnarly single track and you spend your time looking at that, you're going to hit it nine times out of ten. If you look at it, know it's there, and look where you want to go, you'll get beyond it. And it's that non, don't concentrate on the things that are, that are bad or in your way. Know they're there, and then figure out how you're going to get beyond them. I also found it was very important that I did have a strong team, especially because the governor of New Jersey is so powerful, and I used a, I grew up riding. And I use an analogy with horses. I always wanted to have a horse I'd have to rein in rather than one I had to kick. And occasionally, some of my, some of my um, heads of, of departments would get ahead of me, and I'd have to rein them in and say, uh-uh, we're not doing that. But um, I'd rather have them pushing me and coming up with ideas. Mm -hmm. You set the big policy. You say, this is where I want to go. This is the vision I have for the state. You tell me if I'm crazy if I want to do this. And, and if not, and tell me how to do it. And then if I say something different, you better salute and get it done or we're going to part ways because that's the way it's got to be um, if they're on your team. But I did also found very early on exactly what the, what the governor said, that if you explain to people why you're doing what you're doing, it may be something they don't like and they may disagree with you, but they'll appreciate your honesty and the process. I had two of those, once as a freeholder when uh, my re-election year, the other gentlemen on the board, they were all men, gave me the assignment of, of establishing a landfill in one of the municipalities in the county. Well, obviously, that was going to be very popular. Um, <laughs> but what I did was I went out immediately and said, OK, we're looking at state sites. This is why we have to do this. We're looking at county-owned sites. This is what we're going to need for it. 
and I went through the whole process. We had an open public meeting till two in the morning. I kept the record open longer than it needed to be. And at the end of the day, and it was my re-election year. These things always happen in the re-election mm -hmm. year. Um, I think there was a reason for that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and at the end of the day, I still won that municipality. Not mm -hmm. by as much as I'd done before, but I still won it. And then when I was governor on my re-elect, 1997, um, that was the year that Bill Clinton had vetoed the partial birth abortion bill in Congress and sent it back to the states. And my entire legislature was up, and it was a Republican legislature at that point. And they determined that they had to write a partial birth abortion bill. I said, gang, you know, it really isn't the smartest thing to do in an election year. You just, you know, you tend not to do necessarily the best policy in election year. You're doing politics then. But they went ahead and did it. And as they did it, I said, I cannot sign what you are writing. It's not because I'm pro-choice, which I am, but it's because you're ignoring the state's constitution, which says you have to respect the life and health of the mother. And you're not writing that proviso in because the pro-life groups that were supporting them were intent on having a really pure, very cut and dried bill. And so they sent it to me. And the tool that I had that at that point, and I don't think any other governor had, now some of them do, I don't know whether Nevada has it or Arizona has it now, which is a, um, I had the ability to rewrite any piece of legislation. Everybody had the, um, the veto on the budget. But I had what was no, the line item veto, but I had what was known as a conditional veto. And as long as I stayed within the parameters of the intent of the bill, I could rewrite it, and it took a two-thirds vote to override me. And That's, so yeah. I rewrote it. And it actually put in things that I didn't want to put in because they would have provided some restriction on third trimester abortions. And that's what people clearly wanted. And I understood it and got it and said, OK, this is what we'll do. It was the only time I was ever overridden. And of course, then I was followed around during the campaign with someone with a banner with dismembered baby parts saying how many babies I'd killed in the interim. And I wanted to say to them, no, I rewrote it. And for the first time ever in the history of the state, you'd have some kind of restriction on third trimester abortion. But it didn't happen. I still won re-election, very glad. I didn't get any 67%, that's for sure. But, um, <laughs> You know, I won, and some of the people afterwards said, well, you know, you just barely won. I said, yeah, but they call me governor. Yeah. <laughs> That's all that matters. So is that an example of one of the toughest decisions that you made? Or Actually, is it wasn't tough. I was doing what you, I was. Yeah, okay. I swore to uphold the Constitution, yeah. and to me, that was just the right thing. And oh, by the way, after 500000 of the taxpayers' money, it was thrown out in court because mm -hmm. it didn't uphold the Constitution. How about a tough decision yeah. that might not, it could be at the governor's level or at the EPA or in another role. Can, can, is there an example of something where, um, you know, not to toot your own horn or whatever, but something that you struggled with uh, and it was a tough decision, but you, at the end of the day, it was your decision and, and you were comfortable with that. Well, there are always a lot of them. Yeah. You know, it, it's hard to pick one out. Probably one of the hardest was when we wanted to deinstitutionalize our um, handicapped population, our challenged population, and meeting with those families whose uh, children and dependents were in institutions where they had a routine and, and they were comfortable. After talking to all the experts and talking to others, it was clear they we were warehousing them, frankly. Um, they were in big institutions and everything that I was hearing and everything that I understood, they would do better in a smaller, more intense setting. Mm -hmm. 
And meeting with those parents, it was really hard. And I said, look, I swear to you, we are going to put the money into this. We're going to do it right. And you come back after us and, and look in a few years and see whether or not this is going to work. And the wonderful thing was after we did it, the parents that came up to me and said, gee, I never thought my son and daughter could accomplish this much. And now they were out in a more residential community and they were, mm -hmm. and they were functioning. But it was, it was hard to sit down and meet with them and communicate to them what needed to be done and why, why mm -hmm. you were thinking of this and give us a chance to show that your, that your dependent <coughs> can actually be more than they, than they are right now. Yeah. So you get these hard decisions all the time and, and one I'll, I'll relate that I related on today was um, we had uh, two lifers at our state maximum security pr uh, prison take two of the guards hostage, uh, a male mm. guard and a female guard, and they got them into a tower that was in the middle of the, the prison yard that had been built uh, um, so that um, if there were a riot in the yard, uh, guards could get in there and it would be <laughs> impenetrable. And it was like the only state contract ever built to spec because <laughs> it, it, it was in, impenetrable. Um, and uh, uh, we soon had, you know, uh, we put the prison on lockdown. We had snipers around uh, the, the rooftop of the prison. Um, and we began negotiating with these uh, um, hostage takers. Um, and after a week of this, they let the male guard go. Um, he'd been injured during the, the takeover. Um, and they still had the female guard. Uh, and, um, you know, there was a lot of pressure on me. And the head of my Department of Corrections was also a woman. Um, why don't you just storm the tower? Just storm the tower. Well, we knew if we stormed the tower, the tower, by the way, was where the prison armory was. Oh, so, um, uh, and, and the pharmacy, just to make it just a, <laughs> uh, just a total uh, seat of bliss. Um, and, um, uh, you know, I believe that as long as I thought uh, we were talking, um, that we would not storm the tower because I knew they would kill her right away. Um, and, um, you know, we just held the line and held the line um, until finally it was Super Bowl Sunday. And we reached an agreement with these guys that if we delivered a steak dinner and a six-pack of beer, and normally you don't let alcohol into a prison, but... <laughs> I thought in this instance, you know, we they're already on drugs, <laughs> you know. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, uh, and and uh, so we had a robot that was delivering food, et cetera, out there. It delivered the, the steak dinner, and and after um, the game finished, and then there was kind of a choreographed way that they would exit this tower, and they and they came down, and uh, they let the woman guard go. And she was helicoptered to the roof of a hospital in Phoenix. And uh, myself and the head of corrections, you know, met her on, on the rooftop. And, you know, she just grabbed our arms and, and 
said, thank you for not storming the tower. They would have killed me. Um, and those are moments you don't forget. Um, and um, But the pressure that comes to bear, and um, even now when I think about that time, uh, you know, you, you know, you, you just um, think, you know, how did I do that? Um, and um, it, it was because we set uh, a goal. We were going to try to get everyone out alive. Um, we were going to uh, try to do it peacefully. And we were not going to give in to uh, the, the prisoners' demands. Um, and, uh, but, but that... You know, and, and, and there are other instances not quite so dramatic, mm -hmm. thankfully. But um, you know, where you know the pressure is on, and you gotta mm -hmm. you, you gotta hold the fort. So um, thinking a little bit because we're talking about leadership, and you've given some terrific examples so far about your not only the specifics of uh, incidents uh, and anecdotes, but thinking about life today. And as you look around, do you see any female leaders that you know, either inspire you or an up-and-comer that you think maybe you know, but you haven't, is not widely known that you're looking at. It could be political, it could be in business, it could be in nonprofit, but um, anyone come to mind that... Uh, you know, I was thinking about this because you said you might ask it, and I find it difficult to pick somebody out mm -hmm. because you just don't know. I mean, there's so many people I don't know, which is why I hate to try to say, well, this is the up-and-coming young woman. Or, mm -hmm. Because there are just so many that I don't know mm -hmm. and that are out there, and I want to see somebody that I don't know. Mm -hmm. I want to see somebody I haven't thought of. I want to see somebody who is going to come up. I mean, there's so many inspiring women. If you look at women that are starting small businesses that are helping people who are struggling today, if you look at women who are taking on these, the mayorships and the governorships, the ones that are serving, I mean, they are all showing leadership in a way that, you know, I keep saying the world wouldn't be perfect if women ran it, but we couldn't do a whole lot worse than the men. <laughs> and so I just want to see as many of them as I can. And I, I honestly am not trying to duck the question. It's just I would feel really awkward in trying to pull one up because I know there's so many I don't know mm -hmm. who are doing good things. Yeah, I, 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 I agree with you. Um, uh, it's um, the known unknown, right? Mm -hmm. we, ju we, yeah. just, we just don't, don't know. Um, you know, I, I think on the international stage, yeah. Angela Merkel yeah. is uh, someone that uh, has shown some real moral courage mm -hmm. um, and uh, has governed uh, successfully for a, a number of years. Um, and there are women around the world who mm -hmm. um, we don't know either. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, I think I'm going to take a pass on that. Um, well, you offered one. Now yeah. let me ask you, this is not, um, we have a, a woman leader in, in our midst tonight. Michigan knows very well, Governor Granholm, who kind of works for you now, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, uh, I as a professor that. at UC Berkeley, have you done her performance review yeah. yet? <laughs> uh, how about mentorship? Let's talk a little bit about that. Um, every, you know, Mayor Bliss was talking about her, her path, her success, the, the tribe that helped support her. Um, were there mentors, male or female, 
in your life, in your lives that, that were, sounded like your parents and certainly yeah, your husband sure. perhaps, but um, any, anybody you'd like to mention that was kind of pivotal in, in your career? Well, my mother and grandmother who were very strong women and who felt that they could do whatever they wanted to do and the message that I got and, and from my father as well is you can do anything you want as long as you're willing to work for it. Mm -hmm. But uh, a name that obviously might resonate with some people here with, uh, for whom I worked uh, when I was at the Republican National Committee who was just a, an incredible role model was Ellie Peterson. Mm -hmm. And Ellie was a strong woman from Michigan who believed very, very deeply in, in women's rights. And um, it was it, just watching her work, learning from her uh, was a great experience. And then when I ran for governor, it was, there was a group of women who wanted so badly to see a woman. I always get, the thing that's always mentioned is I was the first woman governor of the state of New Jersey. And I always look on that as, that's fine, but I wasn't going to do much to change that because I wasn't going to become a male. <laughs> um, what to me is important, I was the first person to defeat an incumbent governor in a general election since mm. the Constitution had been re rewritten in 1947. That was the accomplishment, not being a woman in that mm -hmm. office per se. I mean, I'm sure back when I ran and when you ran, there were probably equal number of people who would never vote for a woman because she was a woman and those who would vote for a woman because she was a woman even if she was brainless. Um, <laughs> that fortunately has changed and I think for the better in the sense that people are judged on, on how well they, they do and what they offer and, and can articulate. But I have to say that uh, the women in New Jersey the group of them, Hazelbrook and all, they, we had a fabulous women's rally. They, they made a big difference in my campaign and just morally they made me feel good. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, my, my parents had an, uh, an awfully large influence on, on me and uh, both my mother and my father. Um, uh, my mom died before I, I got into electoral politics, but uh, my dad would come out and campaign with me, and uh, you know he he he'd kind of sit in the back, kind of grinning, you know, like, "What did I do here?" Uh, <laughs> um, and but very supportive. And uh, I moved to Arizona, having never lived there and not knowing a soul, uh, after law school to clerk for a federal judge um, on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, Mary Schroeder, and she to this day is a, a mentor um, and uh, someone uh, that I turn to for um, advice um, and comfort. Uh, and you need that at times. Uh, and then, um, you know, I was always fortunate to have a good group of women friends. Um, uh, I had a, a group of women friends in, in Phoenix. We called ourselves the So Group for Senior Executive Women. And uh, there were 10 of us. And it was like the publisher of the newspaper and the president of the bank and the head of one of the larger foundations and um, uh, a member of the county board of supervisors, et cetera. And we would have dinner once a month at a, at a room in a restaurant. and. Uh, um, there were uh, Democrats and Republicans. It really didn't matter. Um, it was really just about uh, sharing experiences and a life outside of politics or public service. 
Um, and those dinners were uh, really uh, rewarding. Um, and when I left Arizona to um, uh, become secretary, uh, the, the, the seat at the table only had room for 10 people. And I'm proud to say that my seat uh, was taken by Sandra Day O'Connor, so, oh. who had moved back to Arizona. Not bad. So, right, right. Yeah, right. yeah. So w when we, uh, in one of the earlier introductions, um, it was noted that uh, there's not a lot of women in elected leadership, and the reasons are, are many. Mm -hmm. I'm curious what, what you think the, uh, some of those reasons are. Um, you have that network that, of women who supported, and that, that's very important. I, I'm, I was a charter subscriber of Ms., which kind of dates me, and as, you know, that's how old I am. But I do remember the essay in uh, Ms. that was, I still have it, which was, I, I need a wife. And it was about women needing someone to support that men take for granted, that there was always someone to support the top executives, the, the achieving the, the overachievers. So that's my pet theory, but I, I'd love to hear what your, your uh, thoughts are on, on that question of why more women don't run. Well, as, as was said before, it's a combination of things. I mean, I don't care how far women get, we are always going to be looked on as the primary caregiver, mm -hmm. whether it's for children or parents or significant other. When something goes wrong, the, the woman is the first one they call. So you have those demands to, to begin with. And then we still don't have pay equity, mm -hmm. so we haven't had a lot of disposable income to give, and we're not in the habit of giving the big dollars, and women have to get used as they move up the executive chain to get used to the fact that the $50 donation doesn't work anymore. It's got to be the $5,000 um, that we need to have ensure that the parties really want women. And the, the positions that I ran for very early on was, well, we'll put a woman in, woman in there because we'll show that we're for women. I mean, certainly that was when I ran for the Senate. You know, this was a giveaway. I wasn't going to, it actually was wonderful because I didn't owe anybody anything when I came that close um, or in the gubernatorial. But um, it's, I think that's it. It's the money thing. And it's just so nasty today. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of women, the women I know who have run for office and have been in office, and you see it in these former governors here, are women who wanted to make a difference. Mm -hmm. I, I, Maybe someday that'll change, but right now I think women get into political office at whatever level because they want to change something or they want to make a difference. They see it as a way to improve things. Where It's not about the title. It's not about perceived power. Because um, once they figure out that for a politician it's every day because you have your regular job which you need to make money to live, and then you have your political job that you have to, and if it's a full-time, it's full-time. And then, of course, every holiday and every weekend, there's a parade somewhere or a picnic somewhere that you've got to go to. So it's not all glamour, and, and it's, a, it's wonderful. It couldn't be, frankly, to my mind, more satisfying and a better feeling of, of having made a positive difference. But um, I think there's a host of things. We've got to get over the money hump. We need better mentoring of women and an understanding that women do face different challenges because we're always going to be looked on as the primary caregivers. Anything to add to that? You know, I, I do think that um, uh, for whatever uh, reason, um, women are uh, more reluctant to take on the risk of running. Um, uh, the risk of uh, dealing with the negativity that goes in a campaign, uh, the risk of losing. Uh, 
um, mm -hmm. and you know, um, you know, I, you know, I was fortunate in my first race when I when I look back on it because, you know, if if I lost, all that would happen is I'd go back and be a partner in a law firm and live a perfectly nice, pleasant life. Um, uh, and and but um, that uh, that putting yourself out there and that um, exposure that you go through uh, is not appealing to uh, a lot of women. And so I think it requires us to really look at support structures for women and how we mentor them and how we uh, uh, facilitate the money raising and all the rest that uh, helps position them to run and to win. Mm -hmm. I think women also have to learn that it's okay to say you have an ego. <laughs> and you have to have an ego because if you can't, if you don't believe you're the best person for the job, why should anybody else believe that? Mm -hmm. Right. And I think in general we've been kind of trained not to throw that out there, not to admit we have an ego. Right. And it's a hard thing to accept. And right. You don't have to throw it in people's faces, but you've got to believe it. Right, right. And how often have we seen some guy um, run and win, who, and you go, wait a minute. Yeah. Um, uh, really? <laughs> not that we're getting into current we politics. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so on that the, all we got? Yeah. On the, uh, on the money front, um, a, a, a woman I knew in Detroit who was a very successful, successful financial uh, manager, um, uh, she isn't with us anymore, but she used to have this line that I loved, which was to the point of writing the check, saying, add up everything that it costs, everything you're wearing and what it costs, mm -hmm. and throw in the jewelry and write the check. And that was, that was, her, that was her motto. So um, I would be remiss not to, you touched a little bit on current events there, even though we, <laughs> but uh, there are a couple of breaking news stories today, and both of you have one. And I think oh, I'd like to start with your breaking news, which is your op-ed in the New York Times today. And the title was, How Not to Run the EPA. Um, would you like to elaborate on that? There are a lot of things that really trouble me about this administration, I'll say that up front. Uh, but one of the biggest that'll be a lasting legacy is the way they are undermining the credibility of science and of climate change. And frankly, climate change is real, it's occurring, and humans' activity has a role to play. That's not to say we cause it, because the Earth has been changing since it was formed. We know that, but to pretend that human activity isn't exacerbating a natural trend to the point where then scientists will no longer, he used to say, well, no credible scientist will say that any particular storm uh, or weather event was caused by climate change per se. Now they're beyond that. Yes, Harvey, Irma, these are what you get with climate change. Uh, the droughts that we're seeing in the West, the, far, the fires that we see in the West. These are the kinds of extremes from weather we see from climate change. And what is happening at the EPA now with Mr. Pruitt um, is, I think, unconscionable on many levels because we need to start addressing this. It's going to affect our children and our grandchildren. It's a national security issue because of a destabilizing effect in the rest of the world. And there are steps we can take. I mean, for people to say that you can't have a clean, green environment 
and you, at, the, at the same time as a, as a healthy, thriving economy is just wrong. We have shown over and over again, between 1990 and 2012, we increased our population by over 20 24%. We increased our energy use by over 35%. Our real GDP more than doubled, and yet we reduced the six criteria, the worst air pollutants, by over 67%. So we were enforcing our environmental laws. We were seeing more people putting more demand on the power system, and we were still reducing pollutants. 200,000 people a year in this country die from dirty airborne-related causes. Um, that's a huge number, far higher than die on our roads and bridges, and yet we spend a lot of time worrying about how we make them safer, and yet we have something around us all the time that we're ignoring. It doesn't mean we have to stop people's ability to earn a living. It does mean we have to be smart because, frankly, we're going to be spending more and more money to address the issues in the, in the aftermath of what happens from these storms, and we're, people are going to lose their lives. And so I just really, really worry about this undermining of science and this red team that um, Administrator Pruitt has put together to elevate those naysayers of climate change to a point where it's really going to confuse people because, you know, and the environment's confusing enough. It's not nice and clean, and Mother Nature doesn't give a rat's posterior about geopolitical boundaries and what happens in one place shows up someplace else. It's hard for people to understand how individual behavior can have a cumulative impact. And to confuse them even more, use our taxpayer money to do it in the face of overwhelming scientific um, evidence to the contrary, I think is really unconscionable. Did, but, but, but this... The anti-science, did you, did you feel any of that when you were head of the EPA? Because it's sort of mind-boggling to see people, see how this has just sort of taken over the debate. Did, where, when did you first start seeing this? Well, there were certainly skeptics, and Jim Inhofe was head of Environment and Public Works, a good Republican There was no pleasure to go before, the, before them to testify because he was an absolute denier and didn't mm -hmm. like any regulation of any sort. Um, it was starting then, but it was not. They, the Bush administration was skeptical of human impact, but they weren't on a crusade to undermine it, or, mm -hmm. and they let the science go forward. And while we didn't talk about it a lot, they didn't go through and scrub anything that mentioned climate change take anything out, say we couldn't support scientists who were doing that research. So it was not, this is a really, really concerted effort to undermine what's already out there and mm -hmm. to try to confuse the public as a way to, um, to foster what they think their, uh, their supporters want. And interestingly enough, you have leaders of major industries, mm -hmm. major petroleum industries saying, don't go so fast. Right. You're moving too fast because they understand that it only is going to take one bad actor to get the whole industry tarred again with the brush. And so they're looking at these rollbacks we're having in environmental protection. It, the agency, it's easy to hate regulation because it causes people to change behavior or spend money for a problem they may not see. It may not impact them. But it's not as if people at EPA get up every morning and say, okay, whose life can I mess up next? Mm -hmm. I'll come with this. This is a good regulation. It'll make everybody's life difficult. This is based on scientific research that says this 
particular way of doing business or this particular thing that we're putting into the atmosphere or into our water is bad for human health and the environment. And it goes through a huge long period and then there's a comment period and you get thousands in some of the more complicated regulations of, of uh, comments and you've got to answer every single one of them and you've got to come back at it. it it's something that really can you look at, re-look at regulations? Absolutely. Are there regulations that have probably outlived their usefulness? Absolutely. Are there technologies that have advanced so we don't have to do things in the old way? I'm sure of it. That's fine. That's thoughtful. Mm -hmm. But what's happening now is not. That's right. And, and um, I really have to applaud um, your piece because um, I think it's about climate change, but it's also about um, undervaluing science as a discipline uh, and the value of research and peer-reviewed research and how that should inform good public policy. And whether students will go into these fields if they look at it and say, oh, well, nobody cares about science anymore. That's, and that's right. not real. And yeah, and, and so it's, it's, it's tragic at many levels, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So your breaking news was a lawsuit filed today over DACA. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, so the University of California sued the administration today to um, enjoin the rescission of the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program on the grounds that um, the way the decision was made violates the Administrative Procedures Act, um, and it also violates uh, the Due Process Clause of the U.S. Constitution. And I know you have DACA students here in the student body. Uh, we uh, have uh, uh, close to 4,000 in our student body. These are young people who were brought here as children uh, who've done everything we have asked of them uh, uh, growing up in the, in the United States. They've gotten their education um, uh, they're in universities and colleges. They're in our military. Um, they're starting businesses. They're um, purchasing homes. Uh, and um, they are um, our students who are DACA students. Uh, the, mo the majority of them are the first in their families to go to college uh, and um, to uh, kind of by executive fiat say um, no longer uh, and now you will be subject to deportation in, in six months. Um, uh, just to me is wrong as a matter of law. It's wrong as uh, it's, it's wrong as a matter of our values as, as, as a country and so um, uh, we have, um, we are seeking judicial relief, and uh, I think we should succeed. So as a follow-up to, oh, go say, ahead. I think it's truly a travesty when you have people who are reluctant to go to shelters after Harvey because they were afraid mm -hmm. right. that the immigration officers were going to be there. Right. And we have first responders who are DACA. Right. Who were there right. helping. Uh, it's just wrong. Right. I guess my, my follow-up question in that is it's the, the, the intent, I think, is six months for Congress to actually pass legislation. Right. Mm -hmm. Do you have a problem with that? Well, I think that, um, uh, you know, we're going to advocate in Congress that they 
um, uh, do their work, um, mm -hmm. but we're not going to bet the farm on it, mm -hmm. and that's why we're in court. <laughs> Okay. They had a good chance. I mean, I, it certainly needed to be improved because nothing a president sends to the Hill is ever going to go through that. But I think George Bush, George W. Bush, when he put up his immigration, his path to citizenship, that was an, a very good first step, and it never yep. got saw the light of day on mm -hmm. the Hill. That's right. Neither mm -hmm. side picked it up, but I think it's mm -hmm. a good template mm -hmm. for the start, certainly. So uh, um, I'm going to start weaving in some of the questions from um, uh, people in the audience. And um, uh, earlier we were talking about, you know, uh, management styles and dealing with the crisis du jour and the bad story in the press. How has it changed, though, with the, the media cycle? I mean, that it... it it's more than re picking up the daily paper in, in the morning. It's this 24-7 plus the blogosphere and the idea that you have Breitbart or almost anything across the gamut, uh, political pe spectrum, that you're reacting to uh, constantly. Did either of you have that? Well, you have it now. You certainly have mm -hmm. it now in your executive position. But you had the, the governorship, too. So can you compare what it was like when you were governor to this 24-7 cycle of constant um, media exposure, even if it's social media? And Yeah, I, it, it, there, it's almost no comparison. Um, it's uh, like going from the horse and buggy to a rocket ship. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, it means that you're, you are uh, constantly exploring what are the best ways to communicate. Um, you know, uh, how do you use social media in a positive way? Um, uh, it's watching out for what's coming in on, on social media. Uh, and uh, it, it requires a lot of uh, duck and weave, uh, so to speak. Um, uh, um, but I, I, I think it's fair to say that uh, an ever-diminishing uh, percentage of the population relies on the printed newspaper for their news or the network news for their news and uh, and and, um, uh, and and unfortunately people are kind of retreating to their corners they're going to media sites that uh, um, express um, the opinions or have the opinions they agree with and are mm -hmm. comfortable with um, and, you know, so trying to find some objective reality in there um, uh, is, is very difficult, but um, I will say, you know, facts are facts, and um, uh, alternative facts are not facts. Um, they, they are untruths, and so we just have to keep, you know, trying to put out accurate information. How do you see the media role in, in civic, civil life? Well, it can be a boon. It gives you access to so much information and the ability to educate yourself. But unfortunately, we're seeing what Janet said, that people are retreating into those sites that make them feel comfortable because they reinforce what they already believe. And it comes down to having to just constantly push back, put the real facts out there, not to give up on it. And it's a little bit like, I, I don't know what you did, but 
you get to a point where you don't read all the negative stuff. No. You just mm -hmm. don't have time for it. You can't. It's good to know where it's coming from and what is the issue du jour, as it were, that, that might build up and should you take some steps to anticipate that and try to head it off at the pass. But if you spend your entire time trying to fight back against every blog that comes out against you, every, every tweet, uh, you'd go nuts. Uh, we have enough problem with tweets these days. And, <laughs> you know, you just, have to, you, you just have to keep pushing back with the yeah. real facts and then just hope that eventually that'll get through. And it's a little bit like campaigning when you learn that by the time you've finished a campaign, you are ready to scream at your set speech because you've said it so many times. Oh, yeah. But you've <laughs> got to keep saying it because you know it backwards and forwards, but it takes about 10 times till the people out there start to get it because they've got other things going on in their lives. Mm -hmm. This is not what they're listening to every day. This is not the most important thing in their lives. You want to go nuts because you feel so bored because you've said it so many times <laughs> and you figure everybody else must be. No, they're not. So uh, we're talking about then and now. Is this a political climate that either one of you thinks that you could be elected to a public office in this kind of climate that we have now? Oh, I think so. I think we have deferred too much to the extremes. Um, the Republicans more so, because we do it better and we've been doing it longer. <laughs> I, worry, uh, I worry about the Democrats because there's a real push to move further and further left. And that's just not healthy to have too many of the extremes. But I really believe that the person that stands up and says, look, this is who I am. Mm -hmm. I associate with this party or that party because this is how I'm going to approach issues, but I'm still going to represent the people who want me elected, and I'm going to think differently on things. I believe they're going to get elected. Mm -hmm. they, they may not get elected by much, but the other thing about it is um, there's a group, No Labels, that works with Congress, and within that there's a Problem Solvers Caucus. It's uh, now 42, 21 Republicans, 21 Democrats in the House who have come together to say they are going to work together and if they take a position if they take a position 75 percent of them agree to a position on an issue they will vote as a block and the thing that's going to make a difference with that is nobody's had their back up till now and so we're raising a 50 million dollar super PAC to tell them when you do this and you take on your leadership we'll be there to support you mm -hmm. because so far, it's been if you take on leadership, you've got the Koch brothers on one side that'll take you down or moveon.org on the other that'll take you down. And nobody has had the back of these people who are willing to stand up and say, no, you know, we need to work. We need to find consensus. Forget the compromise word, which is a dirty word. We need to find it. Well, As know, a I, Democrat, I'm curious what you think. Um, you know, I, I haven't read um, Hillary Clinton's book, but I've been reading a lot about um, some interviews and that sort of thing. And one of the questions is, do you think uh, it was how important was gender in her defeat? And another question about how the press, do you think the press treated you differently than men in your role? Just a little well, gender question. Yeah. Um, <laughs> No, I, I think that um, uh, th there is um, still an implicit uh, bias um, uh, against women. Um, and uh, so it, it takes this form when you're running for political office. Um, if you're too strong, you're too shrill. Um, if uh, you're too accommodating, you're too soft. Um, and, you know, try to hit that balance where 
people are listening to your words and your ideas and not kind of trying to put you in a box. Um, that still, I think, remains a, a tougher challenge for women than for men. Uh, and, and I think that uh, she got caught in that to some degree. Um, uh, I think that, you know, for me personally, um, uh, you know, I always got hit up on the appearance thing. Like, why is her hair so short? <laughs> um, and, uh, and when I started running, um, uh, I was accused once of looking too much like a lawyer. Well, I'm a lawyer, and I was running to be the attorney general. I mean, uh, uh, it, you know, but why doesn't she wear different clothes? So uh, you get some of that, and, you, and those are tweaks. You know, you make those adjustments. Um, but the issue of implicit bias, and we see it in, in sexism, and we see it in racism in our country, these are leitmotifs that we really have to struggle with as a country, and our work is not done here. I'm going to shift gears just a, a bit and ask you, Governor Whitman, because of your role at the EPA. You, you, did, you, you spoke about your op-ed, but in Michigan, we kind of are the Great Lakes state. You know, so we kind of think of ourselves that way. We share a lot of those lakes, but um, how should we be protecting? I mean, whether it's Arizona wanting our water or um, invasive species uh, in the Great Lakes, which is, has been a problem. Yeah. Uh, any advice to Michigan? I mean, what would you, I don't know if these were issues that you were dealing with in the EPA. I got to believe that you were, but Great Lakes are kind of a, a national treasure. Yeah. They're kind of important. Yeah. They're kind of important water source for millions of people. Mm -hmm. uh, invasive species was a huge issue and trying to enforce the regulations. Again, it comes down to people's behavior. You try to say, okay, you only have one little rowboat and you're taking it from the East Coast into Michigan for the summer and putting it in a lake. You know what? You've got stuff on the bottom of that boat that mm -hmm. is not native to these lakes. You've got to scrub it. You can't just bring it in. You've got to be enforcing those. You've got to watch out where pipelines are built. Um, that's been an issue here uh, because there are right places to put pipelines and there are wrong places. And if you have something in, a, in conjunction or near a water source that serves for millions of people, you might want to think twice about is that the appropriate place or what do you do to ensure that it is sufficiently protected so that if there were to be a breach of some sort, it's not going to contaminate the water supply. I mean, a lot of it is common sense, and a lot of it is, is seeing what you can do to help enforce the regulations that are in place for the positions, of, for the issues that they are trying to resolve. But water, the Great Lakes have always been something that the good thing is that you've got a number of states mm -hmm. that surround them and that care about them, and it's putting those coalitions together. And another to country. And another country, mm -hmm. exactly, uh, to push back and... and ensure that the regulations that are in place are being enforced and if there's something new that needs to be done we need to do it another um, current event question um, as a university president what's the role of the university in freedom of speech issues so that's um, that's uh, really on my mind these days because of what we saw in Charlottesville uh, what we saw 
uh, earlier last year in, at Berkeley, um, uh, where uh, a speech by a guy named Milo Yiannopoulos uh, had to be uh, 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 canceled um, so that he could be removed safely. And then there was um, a lot of uh, uh, damage uh, after, uh, after his exit. Um, uh, it's because of issues that have arisen at places like Middlebury College, et cetera, this last year. Um, and it's because of what we're uh, looking at upcoming in Berkeley, where uh, we have some uh, very far-right uh, speakers who have been invited to be um, uh, on the campus um, and um, espousing views that are antithetical to the university's views. But nonetheless, um, uh, universities are places um, that uh, you know are um, designed to be places where competing ideas are are, are espoused. Um, so, how do you marry uh, freedom of speech with legitimate safety and security concerns at, at a campus? Um, and where you have groups like the Antifa who are uh, ready to come in. Uh, and it, these are, this is the group that dresses like ninjas and come in and uh, uh, really are spoiling for a fight. Um, and so at, at Berkeley, we have uh, several of these speakers lined up to uh, come in September. And uh, the chancellor's view and, and I support her is um, while their views are antithetical to the universities, they should be allowed to come uh, and that the university will invest in the law enforcement necessary to make sure that those events are uh, conducted safely and securely and if people um, act out and are violent that they are arrested. Um, and, you know, that's, that's kind of where we're at. But uh, this is a real tension on university campuses these days. And, um, uh, uh, you know, I think that the position of Berkeley is the right position. Um, the execution of it will be a challenge. Well, that's something that we've seen, too, for a while. When I first became governor, there had been a... a member of the Re of the Nation of Islam who had spoken at one of our campuses and obviously that hadn't gone down terribly well and there was another one of Louis Farrakhan's uh, people co representatives coming in to speak at one of the, the colleges uh, state uh, supported colleges and there was a lot of pressure on me to cancel it you got to cancel it this guy is going to cause riots it's going to cause terrible things and I said no it's freedom of speech we're going to let him going to let him talk but Steven Spielberg had just come out with Schindler's List, and I didn't know Steven Spielberg from home the wall. He didn't know me. So I called him, and I said, would you give me a copy of Schindler's List to show at our universities as the counterbalance to what Farrakhan's fellow was going to say? And for the younger students, I recommended <coughs> The Power of One, which is a wonderful book and a very good movie, um, because they couldn't handle Schindler's List. But I didn't want... I didn't want Farrakhan's message to be the only thing that dominated the press. I wanted the other side to have its moment too and to be heard. And but that's the problem, to be heard. 
Yeah. The freedom to be to heard, do. I think, is the harder thing today. You let them go. Um, you know, we, we certainly, for, for this audience, the, the experience that doing. Betsy DeVos had speaking at the, uh, mm -hmm. at the uh, historically black college in, um, in Florida, I think it was in Florida, yeah. um, but that was a while ago, it's that freedom to be heard, that doesn't seem to exist as much as the freedom well of expression. Days. Yeah. So um, another question about, um, uh, as we're, we're starting to wrap up here, I'm curious, you know, we've talked about being able to say, you're a leader, you know, and we, we heard that a little earlier tonight, claiming that, owning that. I'd like to hear um, both of you talk a little bit about something that you're really proud of that you did, something that was an accomplishment <coughs> that um, when you look back, glad you did it. Well, um, I'll, I'll, I'll start. Um, I'll, I'll harken back to my days as Secretary of Homeland Security. Um, I'm really proud of DACA. We did DACA when I was Secretary, and we did TSA PreCheck. Um, oh, and, I love TSA. Uh, Yay, that got the applause. That got the applause. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, and, um, you know, we're, we're fighting for DACA now, and it's an important fight. Uh, uh, um, pre-check, on the other hand, um, <laughs> everybody's pre-check. Everybody's pre-check, yeah. Governor? Uh, you know, it's so hard, and, and I'm sure the governor or the president, it's even better sounding, <laughs> except it's not if you've been a governor. You, love that. <laughs> um, you know, it's the same thing you face. It's so hard because you deal with so many different issues to tease out one. Mm -hmm. I always get known for the million acres of preserved open space, and that was very important. But to me, what was also important was dealing with the, the tax structure in the state of New Jersey so that we had lost 350,000 jobs in the previous three years to my taking over. Private sector jobs had left. By the time I left, the private sector had created 450,000. That was giving people the ability to stay in the state, to earn a living, to, to raise their families. That was important. Establishing core curriculum standards in, in uh, six areas that we didn't have. That was important. So it's, and what I, welfare reform that we did and dealing with the, those who were in institutions in the state. So it's hard to pick out one that really stands out. It was just sort of the whole term. And I think you probably agree that your right. term, if you really think you've done the best you can for the state, and I suspect that all the, the women leaders would say that, then it's hard to pick out any one and you're just proud of that time in office. And it's why it's good to be governor, right? right. You can actually do yeah, those kinds of do things. things. Yeah, It's good to be queen. <laughs> <laughs> so with that, um, we are out of time, but I think this was a terrific conversation. The candor. Um, The candor and the insight, I mean, I, I, uh, I've interviewed a lot of people in my media career, and I'm trying, I'm struggling to think of two former governors who happen to be male in these chairs tonight exhibiting more candor and more insight. I don't think it would happen. So thank you very much. Thank you. All. Thanks to the Howenstein Center. That was Janet Napolitano and Christine Todd Whitman. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. Kadarjabar and I edit the podcast, 
and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's life of leadership and service. Our programs address many of the most pressing issues in American life. Our annual Progressive Conservative Conference challenges leading thinkers on the left and right to explore the possibility of common ground and to redefine their respective traditions. Our annual Conference on the Midwest brings together academics and journalists to discuss the cultural and political significance of the region that's often called flyover country. And of course, the Howenstein Center is itself a center for presidential studies, and it's been quite a year for the presidency. Gosh, I've said that every time. To learn more about our programs, visit howenstein.org and follow Howenstein GVSU on Facebook and Twitter. You can also follow me on Twitter at Joe Hogan CGI. Thanks for listening. I'm Joseph Hogan. This has been Common Ground.